This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. It is actually June 19th of 2023. JP and I are here, and we thought it's time to uh, re-inaugurate uh, our annual tradition, which is um, congratulating the class of folks finishing and also welcoming the new class. So whether you're graduating from high school, college, medical school, residency, fellowship, or whether you're entering uh, college, medical school, residency, fellowship, or your first job, this is usually about the time of year when this is going to happen. So JP, we've done this, how many years has it been? Has it been, is it, is this the fourth year? Um, let's see, we started late 2019. So this should be our third year of graduation discussions. Fantastic. And I do want to thank, again, our listeners. We are uh, approaching a million listens, which, again, this is not a podcast generally intended for patients or the general public, although there's some people that listen in. Uh, so it's a very narrow topic field. And so we really want to thank you for your loyalty and paying attention to what we have to say. And please, again, comment suggestions uh, to our email, uh, neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. But uh, let's kick it off. So, JP, you know, we just had our residents and fellows graduation on Saturday. Did you guys do yours yet? We're actually doing ours next week. There's some weird stuff happening with the schedule in our department uh, this year. So we're having our whole celebration and party and, and our, our, our whole day of events next week. Yeah. So, there, I mean, depending on your level of, of training or education, it's so different, right? So we've always focused on the new incoming interns, right? We've generally focused on the, that group because this podcast was set up mostly to, 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 to prevent another doctor death, if you will, right? Or message yeah. properly. And I, I just, I think it's, it's probably the most important and impactful group in a, in a lot of ways because they might be most receptive uh, and they're entering the longest run, right? That's the longest run of training or education for most, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Um, the, the other interesting thing that, that I always try to keep in the back of my mind um, when we think about the target audience for the show and, and the role that we can serve is not just the interns, but we, you know, we've done so many episodes for people in high school, people in college, people in medical school who, as you get closer and closer to your neurosurgery interviews, the number of neurosurgeons you might meet is increasing, particularly in medical school and as you start doing rotations. But if you're in high school, if you're in college and you think to yourself, I might want to be a neurosurgeon one day, the odds of you getting to meet a neurosurgeon and in particular, someone who is an academic neurosurgeon who's involved in organized neurosurgery or selecting candidates for residency, the, the opportunity to meet someone like that is so limited. And with this show, not only just you and I, Dr. Wang, getting out here and you know spewing our opinions across the country, but by bringing all of our guests on, people who might be in a small town or who don't have an academic program where they're going to college, I think it gives them a chance to get exposure to the, the wide breadth of neurosurgical personalities and mindsets and cultures across the country and all the programs that one day they'll apply to. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded now just recently of Ann Stroink, our, our immediate past president of the AANS. Uh, she had a fantastic meeting in Los Angeles. I was fortunate enough to be the annual meeting chair because Reg Haid had made me his SPC for the previous year. But Ann, Ann really focused on that. And I know and uh, you've you've traveled to go meet her, right? You've gone out to Illinois to see her. Yeah, I drove down to her hospital for the first time. I interviewed her for our case I can't forget series. She told a great story about um, kind of a snafu in the middle of an aneurysm clipping, but she 
She got her team and her, uh, her patient out of it safely. And it was a real honor to drive down there. I met some of her residents who I've kept in touch with, uh, one of whom's been on the show subsequently. And I got to see where she works and meet with her in person. Um, and that was a really great opportunity to hear how she talked about her experience, kind of exactly as we just talked about, coming from a small town where she didn't have access or exposure to a lot of the leaders in the field that she would subsequently join and become a leader in herself. Yeah, I'm sorry, I misspoke. I said you traveled to Illinois. You live in Illinois. So I, I thought it's the other part of Illinois, the outside of Chicago part that you went to. But, um, you know, Anne has, uh, Dr. Stroink has been a fantastic mentor in that way. And she trained, as you would say, in a small town called Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, Anne has just been a fantastic mentor to so many college and medical students because she has that um, down to earth uh, personality, sort of the opposite of mine and, and inspired so many young people. So shout out to Anne. Congratulations on your presence and an amazing meeting as well. So. You know, JP, before we dive into like all the typical, I want to bring up a theory I've been building. And and because you, you were a psychology major, right, at UF? Right. Yeah. FSU, FSU. I'm sorry, FS. I'm sorry. That's an egregious error. So you were, you were a Seminole, not a, not a That's right. Yeah, my dad went to FSU, by the way. Um, so um, I've been working on this idea for some time now. And the idea, and this has to do with training, of course, is that one of the reasons neurosurgery is so magnetic, now you can take away the cultural influence, you can take away how important the brain is, you can take away the media elements, the fact that we're respected and uh, we make a lot of money and all these things, right? But if you said, what is it that, that sort of hooked people in, right? It was always something like, well, I was a student and then this resident or attending let me suck out some of the GBM, Right. I mean, I think most neurosurgeons have a story like that. You, you, you must have a story like that, right? I do. I, uh, I distinctly remember um, because I think the moments were so intrinsically impactful, but also I tried to really appreciate things like that while they happened. I distinctly remember um, various moments like that in medical school. The first pedicle screw I placed, that was in your OR. The first burr hole I ever drilled, that was um, in Dr. Hiros's OR. And I still have, actually, I have a little, I guess you could call it a shrine or a collection of memorabilia in my home. And I still have the extra end of the first rod I ever cut, which was also in your OR. So I- Oh, you're I, kidding. Oh, absolutely. I, I, have a, I have a great appreciation for moments like that in, in the development of my life professionally and, and personally. They were big moments. Yeah. So, you know, I've been working on this for some time because I've been thinking about why is that happening? Of course, it's harder for us spine surgeons. I'm so glad you appreciate things like that because we don't generally let people do that kind of stuff because what we do is actually in some ways more hazardous than in the brain. And, and we can have a whole conversation about why that is. But mm. the point of the matter is, is it happened. And I think back to Steve Chang when I was a medical student, I was going to be a dermatologist and he would page me when we had pagers to come put a central line in, put a ventriculostomy in, close a craniotomy, suck out some GBM. And I was like, this is got to be the most amazing field in the world. And you usually end up doing something like calling your mother or best friend and saying, you're not going to believe what happened today, right? And, and I think sometimes about why I tell people that I generally don't burn out. Generally speaking, I'm not a burnout kind of person. I got other negative, but I'm not, a burnout's not one of them. And I think about this and I try to enforce this on our training. And what I think it is, is something we call the battlefield promotion. I think Steve Chang coined that term for me. 
in my mind, which is that if you're always allowed to do things that you're not really supposed to be doing because you're not quite there yet, or you're ahead of the game, then you're going to be very happy about it. So examples, taking taking uh, Algebra 1 as a, uh, I don't know what it would be now, like an eighth grader or geometry as a freshman, um, you know, you know, calculus as a junior, right? And then I think about um, the things that you would be so bored with later. Like, for example, if I said, well, listen, um, you know, I want you to wash out this pus on the spine, right? So to so open an incision, post-op infection, wash it out. If I asked a uh, intern to do that, they're going to be like, you mean I get to go to the OR and like, do all this, they'd be ecstatic. If I asked the chief resident, they'd be like, no way, I'm not interested, right? Yeah. And everything we approach in life psychologically, if you let someone do things a year ahead of time, one year or two years or three years, like let a medical student put an A-line, they think it's like the most amazing experience in their life. What do you think about this from a psychological or psychiatric perspective? Um. I completely agree with you. I, I think that that's a mindset that might be unfortunately disappearing from our field in some instances, which we'll get into that. But first, I want to underscore some of what you're talking about. But even before that, I will just add the day you let me place that pedicle screw, I literally did call my mom and dad as I was driving home and say, you won't believe what I just did. And they didn't really get it. They didn't really appreciate that. And my mom was kind of grossed out because she she gets grossed out by things. But I, to kind of contextualize it, I think part of what we should be selecting for every year when we take new trainees is people who feel that way about the things we get to do, who get so intrinsically, emotionally, genuinely excited about the opportunity to do anything physically in the care of, of patients clinically. And what I think you're touching on with this kind of the battlefield promotion or the graduated autonomy, or if you, I'll put on my psychology hat, zones of proximal development, which is from educational theory, which is where you're right at that liminal space between what you know and what you don't know, what you can do and what you can't do, right where you're really learning at the tip of the spear. I think if you even look at the way that we structure surgeries in a training program, it reflects that and it results in the absolute best job being done at every phase of the surgery. The running joke would be you never let the attending close because when's the last time an attending has seriously considered skin closure and really done it and really paid attention because you guys have more important things to think about. And so if you think about how a surgery goes, uh, maybe not MIS procedures, but conventional surgery, you have the junior resident doing the exposure with guidance the junior resident is doing the closure with guidance and the attending is doing the quote unquote critical portion of the procedure. And that's right where everyone is at their zone of proximal development or at the tip of the spear of their ability, which means they can do it safely and effectively, but also like an intern doing a pus washout, they care so much. They're so invested that they're going to take a lot more pains to do it perfectly than someone who's been in the field for 30 years making an incision. Yeah, yeah, the the ZPD, the zone of proximal development, it's like the downslope of the Dunning-Kruger curve, right? Right. It's, it's where you're, yeah. And by the way, that screw was perfect. Um, <laughs> so I, I do want to remind our audience that what we're talking about is not necessarily physical feats of surgery. They can be cognitive. For example, if you're a medical student and you don't have a license and an attending, and I know this doesn't happen anymore because these electronic medical records, whatever you think of them, they're not all good. Um, 
would give you a prescription pad. Say, I want you to, and I remember this happened to me at Stanford. Internist said, I want you to write a prescription for me for this patient. I want you to write for this. And you're like, huh? And like, how do you write it? And is it SIG and TID, BID, all these things that make you a doctor in lingo and knowledge and jargon. That is important. First time you're allowed to speak to a patient alone, interview, oh, yeah. right? A lot of it's cognitive. It, does, it doesn't ha- write a note. Writing notes as a student is a big deal. As a, as a resident, it's a chore, right? Yeah. Uh, er, early in intern year, the, the first time a senior resident doesn't go check your exam, where the exam you gave is the exam. Yeah. So, so I guess what I'm saying to the audience out there is if you think you might get burned out, if you want to avoid burnout, if you find yourself burning out today, I don't care what you are, even a senior professor, if you could find what is it called again, JP? The zone of proximal development. Okay, I'm going to call it the ZPD, ZPD for you. Whatever you, it doesn't matter. It's in, it's like golf, right? It's individualized. I don't care who you are, where you're at. If you get to your ZPD, you see that with patients. A, a paralyzed patient who first wiggles a finger is like, whoa, that's the ZPD, right? That that is where something has changed materially. And if you can just find that ZPD and live in it, you will always be uncomfortable, but you will always be challenged, improving, and sometimes static and sometimes disheartened, but in the bulk, you'll be very satisfied with the gravity and importance of what you're doing today, I guess. Right? Yeah. You, you, this is so funny because as so many of these episodes that we do, where it's just you and I, and we just, we have these conversations, this is such a um, unexpected direction to go in in an episode celebrating the graduation this year. But I think it's completely appropriate because this is not only a message for people graduating from medical school who are about to start intern year, which is a time of great growth and great physical and mental and intellectual and emotional trials where they need to keep finding this inner drive, but also people graduating from residency who are about or fellowship who are about to go start their practices. And now all of a sudden there won't be an attending, not only watching over them, but pushing them. There won't be someone booking the more complex cases where that g- new graduate is going to be tested and tried. They might be trying uh, more simple cases right out of the gate. And so I think this is a really important message for people in this transition period where exactly as you say, if you start to feel burnt out or discouraged, you have to find some aspect in your work, in your career, um, even if you have to create it for yourself to keep feeling that drive and keep feeling that sense of new territory that you're entering into. I wrote a paper for you back in medical school, Dr. Wang, where we I had this line I was so proud of at the time that neurosurgeons are by nature explorers. And I think there is something about the, you know, to put it in quotes, the classic or the typical personality within neurosurgery that draws us to this field where you don't always have a clean cut answer. There's not always a guideline and we just have to figure it out. And we're in a field where you have to just figure it out for yourself so frequently that keeping that ZPD or chasing that ZPD um, in your career, I think will increase the longevity uh, of your career in total, but also your happy longevity because there's something that you're chasing. Yeah. So let's break into it, right? So let's do this. I mean, we've never done this before. Let's say we take the the, uh, the steps of entering college, medical school, and residency, and then 
um, exiting high to do the exiting, exiting high school, entering college, exiting college, entering medical school, exiting medical school, entering residency. Okay, you do those, and I will do uh, exiting uh, uh, res residency, entering fellowship, and exiting fellowship, entering attendingship, and we get to give more unsolicited advice, which I'm sure people are tired of. But just in a sound bite, what would you tell like your former self? You would say if you could go back and tell your former self, what would you do? Better prepare yourself, or you know, or think about the situation. I know it sounds like two bookends, but they're actually two different things. Finishing high school and entering college are two different things, right? Oh yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so think about that, and then, and then I will I will cover the two stages or the two steps, if you will. Uh, it could be called four steps, right? That you have not gone through yet. And then you do the other, uh, I think it's six, right? Which is, which are really important because some people listening, we've had a lot of folks reach out. They are younger. They are listening, you know, they grew up with podcasts. So people that are in high school are listening because a lot of high school students are very interested in neurosurgery from the get go. Yeah. Um, hmm. I had a very unconventional path to medicine in general and thence to neurosurgery. And I'm a big believer in no regrets because however I got here today is how I got here. So I'm going to try to avoid any big picture, don't do that or do this instead, and try to think rather about how to approach and maybe extract more benefit from or enjoy more fully uh, those transition points instead of like, you know, open a savings account or go to a better, <laughs> go to a better school. Like I, I went to a state school and I had a great time and it, it helped me develop who I am today. So um, I think, let, so starting with finishing high school, um, I would say appreciate that this is one of the last times in your life that you have literally no responsibility um, the first couple of years of college, you, you still really don't. And even finishing college, by that point, maybe some people have started career stuff. They have papers, they've worked in labs, they've had some positions or businesses, a lot of people. But when you're finishing high school, most people really have no responsibility. So I don't mean just like travel with your friends, but you know, spend time with your family, spend time with your friends back home, appreciate the aspect of life that is just being in your hometown because that's something i have looked back on um and missed a little bit and there that that's really that transition from childhood to early adulthood that i don't think you appreciate at the time um so that's what i would say for finishing high school is to take a moment and look around and in, enjoy what your life is because it's about to to change completely and that's irreversible How about entering college? Oh, we're going to go straight through chronologically. Yeah, go, go chronologically. Yeah, yeah. So, so entering college, this might be a little bit generic um, for most of the population, but for people going into medicine and neurosurgery and the, and the real type A's, this uh, might be helpful advice, but really do keep an open mind. Um, there are so many people now who go to really competitive and like prep schools and then get into really competitive colleges and they're just on this track and they've, they've been on a track for a long time or they know what they want to do and they're on the track. 
even if you come in with your stated major biochemistry, you're going to go to medical school, going to be a neurosurgeon or whatever the, um, you know, the, the most common major is these days, biochemistry or engineering or whatever, you can stay on that track and still take a history class or a modern art class or an anthropology class or a psychology class. Um, I bounced around probably 10 different majors until I figured out what I wanted to do. And I consequently genuinely had a liberal arts education and, and a great exposure to a lot of different things. I got to meet a lot of people who were just as specialized as you are, Dr. Wang, but in a completely divergent field like sociology or social psychology or anthropology or music, who spent 40 years thinking about some niche aspect of music and getting exposed to people like that, um, spending a semester hearing their thoughts and, and the product of those decades is incredibly beneficial. And having time to just meet people and socialize with other young adults and learn how to be a person away from home, that's incredibly important. And you kind of meet people, especially in residency interviews, who never really had that opportunity and didn't have that development. And just as much as, at least in my process and at Rush, and I'm sure that's true at Miami, just as much as we care about your grades and your papers and how you are professionally, we're looking for regular people that we want to be around who know how to interact with other humans. And so I, I would say take some time to do the personal and the broader growth in the early phase of college, just as much as you're focusing on your professional development and education and budget time for that in your daily schedule, but also in your semester schedules. Okay. And how about finishing college? Finishing college, um, I think I did a good job of this. Um, I could have done a better job, but at that point, at least looking, looking back on the path I took, that's the last time you're not really specializing. So thinking again about that, the liberal arts background and, and the broader background, once you go to medical school, you're not going to have any structured reason to interact with um, specialist X, like a music professor. If you're in medical school, there's literally no reason you're ever going to interact with a music professor or an anthropology professor or a chemist, except maybe for one lecture in, in the first year of medical school. So if you had good relationships with those people and you enjoyed those classes, uh, reach out, talk with them, let them know if they influence you, any mentors you make along the way. I still, every couple of years, I send emails to some professors I had in college just to let them know what I'm doing and, and see what's happening in their departments. And at least as far as I can tell, they seem to appreciate hearing from me and I like hearing from them. Um, and then I, I think that might be a good time to, uh, again, every step I'm going to say, visit your family, visit your friends, because every step along this way, it's going to become harder and harder to do so. Um, so I would, I would definitely focus on, especially if you're moving further away from medical school, visit your friends back home, visit your family. Okay. And, and uh, medical school, right? Entering medical school? Entering medical school, um, ironically, the opposite of what I would say for college, when you enter medical school, declare a major, especially if you want to do neurosurgery or something competitive, just on day one, say, this is what I want to do and set your goal as that. And this is what I tell everybody who I talk to first year of medical school, who's interested in neurosurgery, declare the major, say that that's what you want to do, plan for it. Because if you change your mind, 
and you have made yourself a competitive applicant for neurosurgery, you will be competitive for every other field. So aim high, declare the major, state your intention, and start checking those boxes and meeting the goals as if you're going to apply for neurosurgery, because even if you don't, you'll be well set up for anything else. Okay, now we're getting specialized. So when you finish medical school. When I finish medical school, I, I, I have family spread out all across the East Coast. And, and again, the further you get, for me at least, the more important this was, I took a week and spent it at least a week visiting every location where I have siblings or with my parents. Um, and also take the time to learn about where you're going to live because it's a match. And so if you've matched somewhere that you've never lived before, I would visit there. I would scope it out to figure out where you're going to live, where that is in relation to the hospital. What kind of, especially if you're, we're talking to neurosurgery people here, the hours you're going to be working, um, you know, having a 10 minute commute versus a 30 minute commute is going to be a huge compounded difference over the course of your intern year. So I would uh, definitely visit. If you can move out a few weeks before you start, the more time, the better, because you'll get more comfortable. You'll learn your route for the commute. You'll learn where to buy a sandwich and, and sleep more comfortably because you're moved in. And all that stuff is going to be really important to not just survive, but to thrive and succeed as an intern. And then finally, along those lines, right? Pardon? Along those lines, what we focused on most, which is getting ready for residency. Yeah, exactly. And and obviously this whole time, go back and listen to our boot camp series. That's the most important thing to do. So um, in terms of finishing residency, what I would say to people is at this point, you know, you're in your mid or early 30s, um, you know, you got to remember that everybody who graduates residency is eminently qualified in so many ways, but we're all different. And so there's a tendency to think, you know, I've come this way, so I need to do this or that or the other. But the reality is identifying where you actually live, because it's your first job, where you actually live on that matrix is very complicated. There's some people who really should just focus on research. There's some people who really uh, need to be hospital. There's some people who need to be in a private practice type setting and, and try to generate as much revenue and income as possible, right? These are the things you have to figure out. But there's so many extraneous forces and you put so much into it that people want to say, well, th th this is a, this is the good way to do it. And this is the bad. Everybody, there, there are neurosurgeons that finish residency and they basically just work for a hedge fund, you know, to, to look at new companies. There, there are neurosurgeons that take very little clinical role. Others are clinical beasts. I think understanding where you, where you really are is really critical. Yeah. So leaving residency is like that. Coming into fellowship, if you're lucky enough to, I think I think the key is that, you know, when I look at our fellowship, that one or sometimes two years, but the one year is so concentrated, and you have to hit the ground running. So I've seen fellows come in that, uh, and this is unfortunate. Some people start a little late because of visa issues. They they miss like the first three months of fellowship. That's like a quarter of your fellowship. Mm -hmm. um, you have this one year, and, and you really see it in ortho. Ortho, at least neuro, you can just follow back on. Know, being a neurosurgeon makes a ton of money. But in orthopedics, that one year defines your whole career. So try to focus that way because your fellowship really the finishing school. You're giving up a ton of time and money at a variable, very valuable time in your life. I tell our fellows, if you came here and you spent a year with us and it wasn't worth a million dollars, I want to hear about that. I want to hear about why you don't think it was worth that because 
It needs to be. It really needs to be. Um, in terms of, of, of uh, leaving fellowship, so at this point, it's like leaving residency, you really um, are entering, and I'll, I'll dovetail this with the, the, the beginning attending phase, I think it's hard to understand how hard it is to be young. And again, I'm going to quote Michael Cusa that the first three years of being a young attending, absolutely, without a question, are the hardest three years of your life. If you don't think that's the case, call me up, send me an email. Because either you are full of shit, or you're <laughs> blind, or you're doing a job that is just not up to your skill set. Um, you're just coasting. Um, and the only folks I hear that from, I think, are folks that are stuck in the military where there are very few cases. Stuck in the rock. Mm. Um, and I'm, it can be like that at this time. So they, sometimes they're very dissatisfied with clinical volume, so they feel very bored. But that's that's what I would say for the, the folks entering ending ship. And I, I, you know... I, this time of year is so emotional for me uh, because I feel like the new class of folks coming in, like, you know, it, it's hard, it's not easy. And, and it's very, uh, very easy to come in with a chip on your shoulder, but it's also very important to understand that feeling of concern that you have in your mind is also the beginning of growth, real personal That's right. Um, I think that's a really important message, as you say, not just for the people finishing their training, but every step along the timeline that we just lined up. Um, each one of those, whether you're starting at the new place or leaving where you've been, it does provoke a sense of anxiety because it's change and change to your life and your surroundings and what you do all day, every day. Um, naturally provokes that that little worry in the back of your mind, and it's uncomfortable, but that is the sensation of growth. Uh, just like if you're at the gym, the only way to grow a muscle is to tax it beyond its current capability. And, and just like that with your mind and with your capabilities as a person, without that little anxiety, you're not growing. And that's the whole point of this process. Yeah, exactly. So for those of you who are finishing a milestone in your life. Congratulations and welcome to the next step. Please keep listening. We are going to pass a million listens very soon. And JP, thank you for all the amazing work you've done on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Wang. And congrats, everybody. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.